back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast. Today we're going to talk about one of the niche and shall I say advanced, in inverted commas, um, therapies in intensive care practice. We're going to talk about ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And to be precise, we'll be talking about VV ECMO, venous venous, venovenous ECMO. Indeed, if you're saying you're putting someone on ECMO, inverted commas, that's kind of a woefully incomplete sentence as the support and the physiological difference between VV, venovenous ECMO, and VA, venoarterial ECMO is really rather profound. Okay, so we're just going to be talking about VV. This post will be an intentionally broad um, and somewhat superficial description of the therapy and perhaps less on the nuances of managing a patient while they're actually on VV. Um, at an exam, at a fellowship exam level, I suspect you'd only be expected to have an overview of what it is, what it can, what it can't do, and maybe when to ask for it. Um, I acknowledge the glaring gaps in the post and the likely criminal emission of the oxygen carrying capacity calculation that seems to come up in every VV ECMO lecture. It would be fair to call this an idiot's guide. And given that these posts are generated from my own notes, um, then we all know who the idiot in that title uh, refers to. We'll start at its simplest level, which is kind of how I try to describe to friends and non-medical people about how ECMO works. So blood is removed from the veins in one pipe and put through an artificial lung type device where CO2 is removed and oxygen added. Then blood is returned to the veins via a second pipe. And if your lungs don't work so well, then the device can replace a lot of their function in the short term. Layperson explanation ends. <clears throat> the degree to which we can replace lung function, primarily the degree to which we can oxygenate, is determined by the amount of venous return coming back to the heart that we can divert through the machine. So let's say that the cardiac output is a healthy 5 litres per minute. Um, so that means that 5 litres per minute is being ejected from the left ventricle and 5 litres per minute is returning to the right ventricle. If the lungs aren't working well, then we would need to capture at least 60% or so of this venous return and stick it through the oxygenator in order to maintain tolerable saturation of haemoglobin with oxygen. So in our example of this patient with a 5 litre cardiac output with a 5 litre venous return, we need to capture... 60% of that, we'll need to capture at least 3 litres per minute from the venous return. Okay, so we'll need to steal 3 litres per minute from the venous return, put it through the oxygenator, and return it back to the right side of the heart. With me so far? Even if you're not, we're continuing. Um, it is at this stage that we immediately run into one of the physics challenges of VV ECMO. Pulling off 3 litres of blood a minute requires pipes of a substantial diameter. These are typically in the 23 to 27 French range, so that's about 8 to 9 millimetres in internal diameter. And you want to place this drainage pipe somewhere where there is a high flow of blood in a large vessel capable of accommodating it. Typically this is going to be the SVC or the IVC. And these are typically reached by an insertion point in the IJ or the femoral vein respectively. It becomes really quite tricky to drain more than 3 litres of blood. Remember, that's our 60% of our um, venous return in a normal situation. It becomes really quite tricky to drain that 3 litres per minute of blood with a single pipe, as you can really only drain either the SVC, and that's the venous return from the upper body, or the IVC, venous return from the lower body. And it should be obvious that the venous return from the body itself is split in between these. So it's very hard. You can't, even if the pipe was bigger in the SVC, you couldn't drain six litres per minute because you're only really getting about three litres per minute that's returning from the upper part of the body. I'm not even going to go into dual lumen cannulas and avalons and all that carry on, if any of you are thinking about that. 
In addition to the limitations of the physical size of the pipes, you have to remember that the vessels within which these pipes are placed are not rigid, fixed, stented things. They dilate and contract in response to intravascular volume and intravascular tone. If you try to suck blood out of them with too much negative pressure, the vessels will collapse around the pipes, blocking all the holes and stopping all drainage. Think about when you get those little straws within little paper packets in McDonald's or wherever you go. And if you try to suck on the straw while it's still within the paper packet, the paper packet just collapses around the tip of the straw. Um, if you try to suck too much blood out of a vessel, um, and certainly if you're underfilled, that vessel will collapse around it and, and that will stop all of your drainage. All that is to say that oxygenation is determined by the proportion of the venous return we can divert through the ECMO machine. And capturing that venous return should be the priority when it comes to deciding on drainage pipe size and placement. Once the blood is out of the body, it's gone through the oxygenator, it actually turns out that getting it back into the body is quite easy. Pushing blood back into the body is much easier in this context and can be done with a much smaller pipe. Pulling is harder than pushing in this context. So in terms of returning blood back to the body once it's been through the fancy magical oxygenator, um, there's two key points to remember. One, it has to return to a vein. Remember, it's VV ECMO, and not VA ECMO, it's venovenous ECMO. So the first point is you have to choose a vein that you're going to return it into. The second point is it needs to return to the venous circulation at a healthy distance from the drainage pipe. It would be bad form to return three litres of beautifully oxygenated blood directly into the inlet holes of the drainage pipe and the whole blood would just go round in a circle. You'd have the three litres of blood just going round in a circle um, from drainage, oxygenator, return, drainage, oxygenator, return. It would never actually enter the body. Enter the body. We call this recirculation and we get around it by placing the tip of our return pipe somewhat remote to the access pipe. For example, we could drain blood from the SVC and return it to the IVC and there, that way you've got physical separation between the two pipes. Or for example, maybe in many circumstances both of, both of our pipes might be in the IVC, we could ensure that the return of blood happens much closer to the heart um, in the IVC or maybe all the way into the RA, but importantly a healthy distance away from where the drainage pipe is in the IVC. Okay, so why would one want to initiate such a therapy? There are a number of indications, or should I maybe say, um, circumstances where VV ECMO may have a role. A reasonable list for examination purposes right, might run as follows. Um, I think refractory hypoxemia is a good coverall term, but maybe better teased out into some specifics below. Um, for example, ARDS, that's a good one. Um, where you can't, if you've got ARDS and you can't maintain safe settings on a ventilator, or safe numbers in terms of oxygenation and CO2 clearance. Um, of note, you could squeeze in almost every pathological lung condition under the ARDS umbrella. So think pneumonia, you've got pulmonary vasculitis, and they would all fall under the ARDS category. This is probably the vast majority of VV ECMO runs. It's going to be a severe um, lung injury, typically from something like pneumonia, it could be a viral pneumonitis, anything like that. That's the majority of the VV ECMO runs that you see. Other causes of refractory hypoxemia that you might pull it out for. Primary graft dysfunction post-lung transplant. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, refractory asthma, um, where the lungs are just so obstructed that you can't really get any gas to move anywhere um, and you want to prevent blowing all the pneumothoraces and killing them with the uh, barotrauma, which is the typical mechanism of death. Um, Something like a bronchopleural fistula, where continuing to ventilate with positive pressure is probably not the best thing for healing the hole in the lung. So let's say you've got a huge blown hole in your lung, all of the air is leaking out through your chest drains, you can't maintain oxygenation, um, and you can't keep the low pressures that you want in order for the hole to heal. Pulnoid VV ECMO might have a role in that. 
Um, think about refractory hypercapnia, um, where hypercapnia is indeed actually causing life-threatening problems despite a thorough effort to fix it. Um, and you can use um, VV ECMO to clear the CO2 from that. And occasionally you'll see the odd slightly bonkers airway surgery where you may have no means to oxygenate or ventilate for a substantial period of time during the actual surgery itself. And VV ECMO may facilitate that surgery being done. Um, there's lots of debate and indeed variations in practice on when you might initiate VV ECMO. There are a number of published criteria for when ECMO is indicated, um, but you have to remember when you look at these things, when you talk about like PO2s and SATs and things like that, a single PO2 of 6.5 and 100% is in no way tells you how sick a patient actually is or if you've actually truly exhausted your conventional management. Either way, at the end of a Viva question on management strategies for something like severe ARDS, it's important that you've been through things like high PEEP strategies, permissive hypercapnia, diuresis, pruning, you might have a nuanced discussion on steroids and nitric, and at the bottom of that list, if your patient is still hypoxemic despite all these wonderful strategies you employed, you should probably mention VV ECMO. It's worth noting that some of the time doing VV ECMO is really not a great idea. As with almost all intensive care organ supports, there's not much point in adding it if you don't have a way to fix the underlying organ. For example, if you have severe ARDS from pneumonia, well, we can probably fix that. However, if you have end-stage COPD, well, we probably can't fix that. Adding the device will not change things. There are some programs who will use VV ECMO as a bridge to transplant, but again, that's probably beyond the scope of this post. But it is important to note that it's commonly used in the post-lung transplant phase um, when the new lungs are a bit heavy, wet, and not working too well, and that's a well-described indication. Um, another reason not to do VV ECMO is particularly if your circulation is falling apart. Let's say you're on 2 mics per keg um, per minute of noradrenaline, um, the left ventricle is clapped out from the septic cardiomyopathy, then it's hard to see how fixing the hypoxic part of that profound multi-organ failure is really going to turn things around. So VV ECMO probably doesn't have a role. On the other hand, that being said, if you're hypoxic and you've got a struggling right ventricle, then adding VV ECMO might be enough to correct the circulatory issues simply by fixing the hypoxia and the hypercarbia that we know is so toxic to the right ventricle. Um, so just because you have a, a, a knocked off right ventricle in the context of severe hypoxemia, you, you may be able to get away with VV ECMO rather than VA. If you wanted to end your SAQ with a flourish and maybe you're going to add some complications to VV ECMO, then a convenient top five list might run as follows. Number one, bleeding. Number two, bleeding. Number three, bleeding. Number four, mm, clotting. And number five, bleeding. Um, I'm of course being a little bit facetious here, but in reality I'm not actually that far off the mark. Anticoagulation is typically used to keep the VV, cir VV ECMO circuit running, but even on those without anticoagulation, they still bleed. And the bleeding is often spontaneously in the non-compressible sites like the pleura, the GI tract, or the retroperitoneum. We're already well beyond 10 minutes, and um, we'll call it quits at that point. We may come back on a later post to talk about some nuances of management and further complications. If you want to get some further reading, you can um, see the Venerable O's Manual, Chapter 41, talks about this. The Elso Red Book, if you can get access to it, is a great um, ECMO guideline that's internationally recognised, and perhaps more easily um, accessible is the Alfred ECMO um, website, which you can just Google for, and it's got lots of great information in there. Okay, thanks for listening. Bye.